We're in the middle of a mini-series of sermons on the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a true follower of Christ. In John 15, verse 1, excuse me, in John 14, verses 15 through 21, we're told by Christ that the Holy Spirit will come to us when Christ returns to the right hand of the Father. True Christians are taken into the family of God the same way orphans are adopted into already existing families. What a picture of the work of the Spirit in sealing us by adoption into the family of God. When Jesus says in John 14 verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He comes to us and He lives in us. Grafting us into this already existing family as children of God through Christ. And then in John 14, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 31, we came face to face with the fact that the Spirit is our teacher. That He not only was active teaching the apostles what they should write down and record for us that we might follow their example, but He actually teaches and trains us. And we're going to follow up on that in John 16 as Jesus further expands this teaching ministry. How does the Spirit teach us? We don't know exactly how He teaches us from John 14, but He just says He comes and teaches us and reminds us of the things which Christ taught and the things which He did. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God as a believer reads and studies and listens to preaching. He illuminates it. He makes it alive. He makes it a light shine on it so that it goes from confusing and dark and trivial and unimportant to center stage, spotlight on the Word of God. We learn that in John 14, 23 through 31. Today we continue the series of sermons with this message entitled, Jesus' Promised Spirit, Fruitless to Fruitful. You know, it doesn't matter what society you live in. The older a person gets, the more they reflect over their life and wonder, have I done anything that really matters? When I'm dead, when I'm gone, what will they remember me for? Will my life have had any lasting, eternal impact. What they're asking, right, is, is there fruit in my life of the gospel or not? They may not phrase it that way. But when believers ask that question, that's how I see it. I think that's what they're asking. So turn to John 15, and we're going to read the text this morning, verses 1 through 11, and then this sermon will come from that text. As you are turning or are already there, would you stand with me as we read God's Word in respect and honor of the Word, which is our authority. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does not that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself 
unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I abide in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in me. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. May God bless and attend the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Not many of us have a direct connection to the idea of a vine and a vine dresser in our culture, in our day. But I think it's so important that we grab hold of this parable. Which is, that's what this is. This is the seventh I am statement. This is it. Jesus ending his series of statements which John organized the whole gospel around. You remember, seven signs, miracles, which attested to his power as the Son of God. And seven teachings. They are the I am statements of John. So John is building this, this beautiful picture of the gospel. He's recording it for us centered around these teachings. This is the last one. It's placed, I think, by John uniquely as the last statement. It's interesting to me that we find this one. I am the true vine. Here in John 15. Now I think that is because he taught here. We see in John 14, if you look just up above verse 1 in your Bible, remember the original had no divisions. So it would have said, go let us come, uh, come let us go from here, then I am the true vine. We don't really know where this takes place. I mean, I don't know if they're still in the upper room. I don't know if they're walking through the valley and headed into Gethsemane? If so, it'd be unique and different because they walked past the temple which was decorated with pure gold fashioned as a vine. And Jesus walking by the door of the Holy of Holies may have said, I am the true vine. Why? We don't really know the setting exactly. We know it's at the end of His life. We know it's the upper room discourse. We know that he's preparing to move to Gethsemane. But we're not sure exactly where he is. I mean, you know, when you say, okay, it's time to go. I mean, your family spends some time getting ready to go. So he may have been teaching this as they're getting ready to go. If so, I think as they're gathering their stuff up, it's kind of like some of y'all do. You know, you make the mistake, you're not trained real, real well yet. Maybe you've only been in our church a little while. And I say, this is it. The last point we're wrapping up. You think, we're done. And then 15, 20 minutes later, you're like, I thought you said we were done. Jesus seems to do this. It's a good tradition for Baptist preachers to preach that way. Jesus did it. 
I don't know exactly where he was. I do know this is significant, this teaching. I am the true vine. And he places it here in John 15 in the upper room discourse. The imagery of this passage is uh, both familiar and unique for the disciples. Familiar in the sense that as they looked across their landscape, unlike our landscape where you don't see vines, they saw vines everywhere. They all had vines. That is, unless you just plan to drink water all the time. None of us like to do that. This is how they made their juice. This is how they made their wine for their celebrations. They grew their vines. They dressed their vines. Very familiar in that way, but unique. Unique. It stands out. It contrasts a little, and we're going to see that this morning. Let's look at this passage real closely. You know, if you are new with us, we have some visitors. First time, and we're glad you're here. This is You're going to think, man, this is very simple what he's doing. I could have done that. And you're right. What you're going to notice about my outline is it's the Bible. This is the text. We're just going to put it in an outline form, okay? So just write it down. It's going to come up on the screen, hopefully, if I don't throw Chris off in the middle. Chris, I apologize in advance if you get lost. Listen, the first point, right there in the first verse is, Jesus is the true vine which bears fruit to the glory of God. That's in verses 1 through 3. Jesus is the true vine which bears fruit to the glory of God. Jesus is the true vine. That's the first statement we see. I am the true vine. In contrast, I guess, right? I mean, doesn't it? We quote the second occurrence in this text where he says, I am the vine. That's what we quote. But isn't it interesting? In the first quotation, he says, I am the true vine. There must be a vine which is an imitation or that is incomplete. Or, we might say, that is a shadow to point us to the true vine. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see that there was a vine, Israel, whose whole point of existence was pointing us to the true vine. Let's read some passages together. You don't have to turn there. Just listen intently. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. God speaking, Yet I planted you, speaking to Israel, as a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? I am the true vine. Do you see the uniqueness? They weren't new on this analogy about a vine. They had heard that all their life in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I'm not degenerate like your nation was, like Israel was. That was the shadow. That was the shell. That was the neon sign in the Old Testament pointing to the need for a true vine. When you read your Old Testament, which was the Apostles' Bible, by the way, you need to be reading it. I'm going through that with somebody now uh, in the mornings on Tuesday. And it's amazing. If you're not reading the first 39 books of your Bible, you're missing it. You're missing it. Not just the Old Testament. You're missing the New Testament. Passages like this don't mean that much. You need the Old Testament. It's the background. It's the backdrop. Look, Psalm 80, 8 through 16. Listen to this. 
The psalmist writes, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it in the promised land. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root. It filled the land. They got all the land. They filled the land in Joshua's day. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. Speaking about Lebanon. All the way past Lebanon. All the way to the river Euphrates. All the way to the sea. Look what he says. It sent out its branches to the seas and its roots to the rivers. What? I thought they didn't get all the land. Isn't that what TV preachers are telling us? They got all of, most of it, but not all of it. Psalm 80 says they got all of it in the Old Testament. Every inch of the land God had promised their father Abraham, the vine of Israel covered. Why then, speaking to God, have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? May I just interpret? The Gentiles are inheriting the gospel fruit and Israel does not like it. Israel would not go. They became an inward people and they would not be gospel oriented and preach to the nations. So God did a unique thing in their time. He conquered the nation with the Gentiles so that they would come. Sometimes if you won't leave your house, God will bring your neighbor to your house so you'll share the gospel. Sometimes if you sit in your job as a deadhead and won't share the gospel at that job, God takes that job and puts you in a job where you have to share the gospel. That's what he did with Israel. They're picking our fruit. They're inheriting our blessing. The boar ravages it. And all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. What? David went from talking about Israel to talking about Jesus Christ in Psalm 80. You took a vine, you planted it in the promised land. We wouldn't go and reach the nations with the gospel you were telling us to preach and you brought them to us and conquered and trampled down our land and now you have made your son strong. Not the nation. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved and my love song concerning his vineyard. Isaiah says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, speaking of Israel. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. It was degenerate, Isaiah says. It was a shadow. It was hollow. It was incomplete. The point of the Old Testament is not to hold Israel up to us. To say, boy, they were great. It's to hold Israel up to say, they didn't get it done. They didn't fulfill the promises God must have a further plan. I am the true vine. 
I'm not like the degenerate vine which God took out of Egypt. I'm the true vine. Which your fathers hoped for. And Abraham rejoiced when he saw me. I'm that vine. Dwell in me. O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, God says. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. You say, what happened to Israel? They were degenerate and they were devoured. So that God then sent the true vine. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Ezekiel 15 says Israel was a branch, a degenerate, a degenerate vine. Verse 19, I mean, chapter 19, verse 10, Ezekiel says, Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Hosea 10, verse 1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruits. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars of idolatrous worship. Old Testament scriptures are filled with references to a vine, Israel, which was degenerate. And Jesus says in John 15, God did not fail. I am the true vine. All your life you read the Old Testament wrong. That's what he's telling them. Your teachers read the Old Testament wrong. That's what He told them. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the fulfillment of the or the completion of the Old Testament shadow. That's what I'm saying. Jesus is the completion of what God started in the Old Testament. He is the true light. Israel was called a light to the nations in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I am the true light. In John 1 verse 9. He is the true bread of heaven. Not like the bread which the fathers ate and died. He who eats my flesh will live forever, John 6, 32. He is the fulfillment of that. He is the true light. He is the bread of heaven. He is the true tabernacle. They had a tabernacle. It was patterned after the one made without hands. Jesus Christ. But Jesus in John 1, 14 is said by John that... I came and tabernacled among you. I put on flesh. I lived with you. Stop going back to a tabernacle. I'm the tabernacle. Come to me. That's what Jesus is shouting. He is the true lamb. John the Baptist said all those Old Testament lambs whose blood was poured out for your sins to roll them forward and roll them forward and roll them forward. Why was God rolling sin forward? Because there would be a true lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Not only expiating, covering the sin, but propitiating the wrath of the Father. And John the Baptist, baptizing his disciples, looks up and sees Jesus and says, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And His disciples who've been reading their Old Testament said, that's the Messiah. They left John the Baptist and went to Him. Why? Because they knew the Old Testament and they knew that God was not about Israel. He was about the true Israel, the true vine, the true light, the true bread from heaven, the true Lamb of God. It's Jesus Christ. We lust after old ways that are dead. The writer of Hebrews says, you've not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. Not to a mountain that thunders a law in repression, but a gospel mountain which says, come, take and eat, and you don't have any way to purchase, but I have purchased. You don't have any bucket to hold the water, but my spirit is the bucket. I am the true vine. That's what Jesus is saying. And the disciples are blown away. Their whole world's changed. In their heart, because the Christ was teaching and the Spirit of God lived around them and with them, and they said, this is, this is it. Can you imagine simple fishermen seeing what Abraham longed to live? Can you imagine these men are doing what Moses wanted when he said, let me see your face. They see Him. They see Him and they grasp hold of Him in faith. And I'm telling you, if you're here today and you don't know this vine, if you don't know this Jesus, you need to know Him. You don't need to know about Him. You need to know Him. You need to cling to Him in faith. And God has given you that opportunity. He's given me that opportunity. Jesus is the true vine. He's the true Son. Israel was always referred to as a son in the Old Testament. And yet John 1.34 says that John the Baptist says, this is the Son of God. It's another example. This passage is another example of why I say we often misread the Old Testament. We look at it like just a history. It is a history. Those things really have. We look at it like a moral storybook. Teaching our children, be brave, be strong, be courageous. Make good choices. Fight the battles. All that may be true. And is true. But it's so shallow. What we should be saying is, David did not defeat Goliath. God defeated Goliath. David simply pointed you to Jesus Christ. Moses, his stammering and stuttering tongue, isn't what the book of Exodus is all about. That's about Jesus Christ. God, Jesus is the true vine. God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the, he's the one who dresses or cleans or prunes the vines. Look at what it says. Verse 1, part B. My father is the vine dresser. I'm not a vine dresser. I've never done vine dressing. Okay, so what I'm about to tell you, I know because I've read about it, not done it. Some of you may have done it. Okay? But what God does, and it's in verse 2, is He lifts up and He cleans branches so that they will bear more fruit. You're a branch. I'm a branch. Our church is a branch. 
Jesus is the vine. He's the core. He's the one who provides life through His Spirit. You're connected into that root, into that trunk. And you're bearing fruit. But the vine dresser has a very important job. Because when the vine gets on the ground, it's not like other vegetables which can grow along the ground or melons. It must be lifted up. If it's on the ground, it will not have grapes on it. If it's dirty, it will not bear fruit right. It may bear some fruit, but what fruit it does bear will get fungus and rot laying on the ground. So the vine dresser spends his days walking among the branches, tenderly picking them out of the mud, cleaning them, and posting them up on strings, up on contraptions, arbors, we call them. So the vine can grow bear fruit, and not become unfruitful. Some people take this and butcher it. When I was younger, I did the same thing. I just didn't understand. God is not this morning trying to waylay you for Christ. He's not trying to punish you in Jesus' name. He's walking among the vines and He sees you in the mud. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't run over and stomp on it. He doesn't run over and cut it off and throw it away. Give up on you. You're being faithless. You deserve to be given up on. I deserve to be given up on. But the vine dresser's job, his responsibility, what he's taken on himself is to come and tenderly gently lift you up. Pull you up close to Himself. And clean you off. With His own sweat pouring over those branches. He cleans. He loves. He cares. He hangs them in in a place of forgiveness. In a place of, it's okay. You followed your nature. You grew along the vine. The vine's just being a vine. He didn't say, stop being a vine. He says, I'll pick you up. i clean you off. Look what he says. Keep following the text. This ought to change how you view your Father in heaven. He's not up there, the big bad boogeyman, looking to crush every dream you've ever had and hate you. He loves you. Look what he says. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Cuts off, your translation may say. That's a bad translation. It's a possible translation. But based on the text, it doesn't make sense. If a vine dresser cut all the vines off, the branches that drug on the ground, he wouldn't have a vineyard. They all naturally want to run on the ground. That's what a vine does. What is it? You get down in your lexicon, down to the fourth possible meaning. It's the one that matters. It's this meaning. He picks it up. Takes away. The ESV calls it takes away. What does that mean? Not take away from the branch. I mean, take the branch out of the vine. Take away. Takes away from the dirt of sin. Picks it up. We have here a picture of God's forgiving our sins. Taking us out of the daily muck and mire of our failed life and existence. Saying, in my vine, I will have branches and they will bear fruit. It's my responsibility that they bear fruit. 
Do you see the love and the compassion and the mercy and the grace and the patience and the long-suffering? And when we are faithless, He is faithful, Timothy. Just keep staying, trusting. He won't turn His back on Himself. You're in sin and you know you're a believer. But you're in sin this morning. You're saying, God's out for me. I know He is. No. He's walking among the vines. The Father. And He's lifting up. And He's supporting. And He's loving. And He's cleaning. And He's taking the responsibility for your life on Himself. And so it says, Already you are clean because of the word which abides with you, which I've spoken. Jesus is saying the same thing he said in John 13. Remember, Peter, you don't have to be take a bath. You're clean. You just need to be clean on your feet. You've gotten in the dust. The same thing right here. You don't need to be totally transformed. You're already a believer. But you got sin in your life. You need to be cleaned. How can I be cleaned, you might ask? By this word. A Christian without the Word of God looks a lot like the world because we're all vines, branches, all branches. Some of us are degenerate branches, wild, need to be cut off and transplanted into the right vine. Some of us need that. If you're in that position, the worst thing you can do is clean your life up. The worst thing you can do is start being righteous. Because as soon as you do that, you'll become self-prideful and you'll say, I got it. I'm good. I'm a believer. And it's evidence because I'm a good person. That's the worst thing you can do. Self-improvement. Moral fortitude. It's awful. A lot of people dying and going to hell. Moral people. Good people. No, if you're a sinner here this morning and you don't know Christ and your life's full of stuff that looks like sin, you don't need to clean your act up. You need to repent of yourself. You need to say from your heart, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And anything I do for myself is unacceptable to you. Would you please clean me? Would you please give me your life? Would you please change me? You need Him. You don't need more of yourself. Moral improvement is not the point here. Being cut off completely from the church of God is not the point here. The point is that our Father lovingly and gently grooms and prunes and cleans as any good vine dresser does with love. And makes our lives look like Christ. They bear fruit. God the Father, after He lifts and cleans all the branches so they bear more fruit, in verse 2, He cleans us with the Word. Just so you get that. Second point. Jesus abides in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, which causes us to bear much fruit. And here's the meat of our text. Here's the point. He repeats 12 times from 
Here, verse 4 to the end of the chapter, abide in me. I abide in you. That word abide is all over this passage. All over this passage. Twelve times. It's not used in the Gospel of John in any other way. In any other context. What does he mean when he says abide, stay, live in me? And then through the Spirit you'll bear much fruit. Well, we must remain in Christ. And then He will remain in us. You can read this, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever, verse 5, abides in me and I in him. You can take that as a command. You can take that as a given. It's really conditional. Don't be bothered by that. Don't remove the conditionality. That's the way we test our faith. and Know if we're in Christ. He's saying, if you don't abide in me, I'm not in you. You get 20 years down the road and jettison the faith and walk away from the church and become just another person on the street who's kind of good and not as bad as the next guy, that means you weren't ever in Christ. You're not going through a rough patch. You don't need to clean your life up. You need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the very first time from your heart and be grafted into the true vine, which is Jesus Christ. That's what you need. This is a conditional statement. If you don't abide in me, I'm not in you. That's what he's saying. But if you do abide, then I am abiding in you. It's, again, a way for us to test ourselves. Wrestle with our faith. In our evangelical world here in this side of the pond, in this last generation especially, we've become drunk on the wine of once saved, always saved. Don't shut me off. Keep listening. It's very careful here. Okay? We're drunk on the wine of once saved, always saved. And we explain it like this. Well, once you believe in Jesus, you can do whatever you want to do. You can live however you want to live. And He's got to save you. Because once you're saved, you're always saved. You ever heard anybody talk like that? I've actually heard people say, you could confess Christ, repent of your sins, and then be a practical atheist the rest of your life. And when you die, you go to heaven. We're drunk on a wine called easy believism that will damn millions to hell on this side of the pond. I'm telling you, more than me, Jesus Christ is saying, if you don't continue in me, I am not in you. We hold here a belief in what is known as the perseverance of the saints. What does that mean, Carlton? Good question. I'm glad you asked. What it means is those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God are in Christ. Regenerated. Brought to life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You've been brought to life by the Spirit of God. And the first thing you did when you came to life was repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. You confessed with your mouth. You believed in your heart. That's what he says in Romans 10. 
And that means because of the life which is now in you, you are in Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places. No one can take you out of the hand of the Father. No one can separate you from God at that point. Not even yourself. But that means you will now live obediently in the way of Jesus Christ. It's not a ticket, an insurance ticket that you stick in your pocket and when you die you flash the card to go through the pearly gate. That ain't how it works in the Bible. When you really are made alive, Christ becomes your life. And now as He loved the Father, our text tells us we love the Father. As He obeyed the Father, we obey the Father. Not so we will be saved, but because we are saved. So if there's no obedience in your life, if you look at your life and say, that looks nothing like Jesus Christ in any way, there's no spiritual fruit coming from me, Carlton. If you abide in me, then I will abide in you. We've done one of two things. We've made grace real easy in our day. And we've made the law non-existent. We won't preach sin and judgment. And we won't ask people to examine their faith. And that's not true to the Scriptures. We've either done that a lot or we've become legalists. Use the law to save yourself. That's no good either. What do we need? The Gospel. We need the Gospel. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And when I'm in Him, I obey Him lovingly. That's what we want. That's what we see in the Scripture. Jesus says, we will bear fruit as we continue in Christ because of the Spirit. Look at verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Do you see the definite statement? He it is that bears much fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, something's amiss. Now, what is the fruit? Y'all are asking wonderful questions this morning. I'm so glad. Because Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tell us what the fruit is. The fruit of the Spirit. You say, how did you know the Spirit was involved in Jesus? didn't say anything about the Spirit. Because Paul said, this fruit that's going to come out of your branch, which is connected to the vine, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering. Against such, there is no judgment. That's the fruit. Wait a minute. Oh, Hold on, Carl. I've heard this preached. And the preacher said, you need to share your faith more. Well, we do. We do. But that's not what he's talking about here. I've heard guys say, we've well, got to give more money to the church. That's the fruit. No. That's important. You need to give money to Christ that His kingdom might be built on the earth. But that's not what he's talking about here. I need to be kind and 
Gentle. Yes, that is one of the fruits. But let me just give you a good idea. When Paul says, it's interesting, when he wrote that sentence, all of those things will be increasing in your life if the Spirit is present in your life. You won't just be more loving or more giving or more gentle or more patient, improving in one area but not in the others. All of those things will be improving. All of those things will be present. They're not present in my life. Then wrestle with your salvation. Know whether you be in the faith. That's what the Apostle Paul would say. That's what Jesus would say. That's what the Gospel teaches us. Self-examination. Don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about the person in your family. Think about you. I need to think about me. Is my life known for love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If not, all those things growing and maturing in my life, there's questions still. There's, this, there's something amiss. It very well may be sin that just has gone unconfessed. It very well may be bad choices that I'm making on a daily basis. I don't know what it is. It could be you don't know Christ. And so He's not in you, therefore His Spirit isn't in you, therefore you can't grow in all these areas. Because when I read that list, you said, well, who can do that? That's the whole point. You are so smart. I can't pull anything over on you people. When I read that list, you automatically said, okay, yeah. Right. Who does that? Nobody. Only the Spirit of God does that. Grows you in all those areas. Well, my personality is just different, Carlton. This isn't about personalities. It's not about personality. It's about the Spirit. Jesus said, a grapevine doesn't produce briars and thistles. Neither does a thorn bush produce grapes. Because what you are is what you produce. Let me give it to you this way. I just start talking about fruit and you start thinking, I've got to do better. No. That's like me saying, I like grapes. In their day, I like grapes. Okay, well, what's the first step then? You've got to have a vine. In their day, there's no Walmart. Jump up off the couch and run to Walmart and buy some grapes that somebody else grew and picked and cleaned and they taste so sweet and they're so good. No. If you want fruit in your life, you've got to have a vine. You've got to have Christ. The answer is not get up from this message and say, oh, I've got to go try harder. No. If these things aren't in your life, you need a vine. You need Christ. And His Spirit will then reside in you and will be the, the cause, the flow of fruit. Because vines bear much fruit. He it is who will bear much fruit. That's a definite statement. You say, well, I just am one of those kind of people. Well, then you're saying I'm not a Christian. Or either God's a liar. You think about it. Get back with me. 
Say, my life doesn't look like that. Either God's lying or you're not in Christ. Jesus is the true vine. He will not fail to bear fruit through His Spirit in your life. He will not fail. How do I know if I'm in Christ? Uh, go back and remember someday I walked an aisle and signed a car and got back? No. Look for these fruits. If they don't exist, you're on the right trail. We must understand what true fruit of the Spirit is and judge whether we are in Christ. Now, so you don't get off the hook on evangelism, you show me a person, a branch, in the vine bearing this kind of fruit, and I'll show you a soul winner. You say, I I can't name the time that somebody actually committed their life to Christ in my presence. I've never had anybody come up and ask me for the reason for the faith which exists in me. Maybe they hadn't seen any fruit that makes them wonder why you're that way or what you believe. You show me somebody in the vine, the true vine, bearing this kind of fruit, and I promise you they are a soul winner. Because it's attractive to those who God is after with His gospel. We must bear fruit by the Spirit so that our work is not rejected by God. In this passage, we're, we, we are closing. <laughs> not 15 minutes from now. We're getting there. Verse 6 scares the bejeebers out of me. Does it bother you? Doesn't it unnerve you? If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and they're burned. Some people take this verse One group, one school takes this verse and says, We told you, Calvinists, people aren't saved until they're dead. They have to they have to not just persevere, but they have to continually be forgiven of their sin. If they die in the midst of sin, they they're thrown away. That'd be our Armenian brothers. That's what they say about this text. You can't be certain of your salvation. I don't think that matches up with the Bible. Because in Philippians 1 verse 6, it says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work until the day of salvation. Paul doesn't sound like he's worried about the Philippians getting disqualified and losing salvation. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, What therefore can separate us from the love of Christ? Not persecution, not death, not an angel, not even yourself. Nothing that's created can separate you from the... Jesus said in John chapter 10, if you don't like what Paul had to say, you're in the Father's hand and no one can pluck you from the Father's hand. I don't think this text is saying you can be saved and then lose your salvation. Something else is going on. Second option, 
possibility, I think. Spurgeon believed this, taught it very powerfully. Some of the great, greatest Puritan teachers taught that this refers to nominal Christians, those who are apostate in the end. Nominal Christians for them. Carnal Christians were not real Christians. And they would then be found out in the end and they would be cast out. They were pretenders. They weren't really in the vine. They were just closely associated, sucked up to it. They were degenerate. And they'd be found out and cast out in the end. Possible. It is possible. I think, though, what he's talking about here is what he's, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look with me really quickly. He says, If anyone, you see that anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch. How are branches thrown away? How are branches cast out? Earlier in the text, what did I say? He prunes, he cleans. What we have here is that Jesus is saying, your life, though you are a Christian, if you are not walking in the Spirit, if you are not living your Christianity by the power of the Spirit of God, if you're fleshing it out, if you're working real hard in your own strength, those things will be cast out. Not you, but all your work will be burned. How do I get that? Because the Apostle Paul explains it, I think, much more in detail, this process. And I think it will make more sense to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let no one deceive himself, he says. Um, oh, excuse me, back up the text, verse 12 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Just jot it down and look it up later. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, now it's coming full circle, I said... Some of you are asking the question, what is my life counted for? Do I have anything that is counted for eternity? There will be a day when you will know. And sadly, many Christians will live their entire lives and very little will survive the fire. They're saved. They're saved. They're in. They just don't have a lot to show for the life they've lived. This side of eternity. Why? Because they're not in the Spirit when they're working. Now, this is where I close for our church because it's so important. We are a church that I'm afraid for many of us, we will have most of our lives consumed with this fire. Most of us will not go to hell. We are truly in the vine. But we are gutting it out for Jesus. We're working real hard for the name of Christ. We're trying to whip up the work. Churn it out. Look good to our buddies, our friends, the other churches. And we're going to stand before Him. 
bear because everything in this life is gone. Paul says, you're going to survive the fire. You Corinthians are going to survive. He'd say, you Grace Fellowship members, you're going to survive. You just aren't going to have anything left from this life. I, I can't help but think that that's some of the tears that Christ will have to dry. You say, well, what will it matter? I'm in heaven. In that moment, it will matter. As you stand before the Savior and say, There's nothing. I lived 80 years and there's nothing. That can't be our church. And I'm not telling us to get busy doing a bunch of stuff in our name. I'm saying we certainly need to be seeking the Spirit of God to work in our midst. And fruit would be coming from this branch. And people would be being saved. And lives are transformed. And whole nations are turned upside down. Don't you want that? I hope that's what you want. I've had to confess this week. that I, over the last six years, have done a lot of things for myself. Good things. I've still had a lot of Bible studies, a lot of mornings. Not all of them, but some of them for me. I've shared my faith for me. I've loved my wife for me. I've prepared sermons so I don't get up here making a fool of myself. I've had to confess and he's faithful and just to forgive. And so I'm coming to you as your brother. I'm not coming as some master telling you what you need to do. I'm saying, join me in confessing it to Him. That's all I'm saying. Join me in saying, God, we've lived a lot of our life for ourselves. I don't want to do it. Give me more of the Spirit that I don't live that way now. Redeem the time in me that's left, whether it be a few weeks or years, so that when that fire refines us, There are meaningful treasures which have been laid up that are for your glory. Let's pray. Father, we are.